You don't know what a deep breath it is for me to be able to leave town and know that I have uh, staff that can handle things in my absence. And if you were here last week and you got to listen to Shelton preach his first uh, sermon to a, he said, English-speaking congregation, which I think is a great uh, way to say that. I thought he did a great job. I, uh, I watched and listened online, and uh, man, he came out uh, on his first time dropping bombs that were just so good. I, I don't know if you guys have a, I don't have a very good memory, so I text myself all the time. If you don't know that little trick, you can text yourself, and it saves the whole thread of your thoughts on your phone. And so I text myself uh, whatever little reminders, and as he was uh, as he was preaching, I was texting things like, when your soul is satisfied in God, that's not a satisfaction that wells up inside of you. That's a satisfaction that flows out of you. And I thought, wow, that's, I mean, if you, that's incredible. That's a, that's a, I, I thought I'm writing that one down. That's a, that's good stuff. So he did a great job uh, filling in and, and covering for me. And I know that uh, you guys who didn't get to watch that, you should go back on Facebook and kind of remember uh, to watch that this week because it's so, so good. And this week, we're going to start something brand new. Uh, our new ser- sermon uh, series I've entitled, What Matters Most? I really struggled with the name of this series of what to call it, how to entitle it. But when it boils down to it, we're going to talk about things that we know are important, things that we know really our faith kind of hinges on and things that uh, there are all kinds of incorrect and correct teachings on. We are going to talk about this week the reality of heaven and hell. Uh, and then the next three weeks, we're going to talk about, the, they're all $5 words, I hate to have to use those, justification, sanctification, and glorification. We could rename it something a little bit more hip, like um, the point, the process, and the payoff, or something like that. I don't know, I'll, I may tweak the name of the next three weeks, but we're going to talk about what it means to be saved, and how that process is fleshed out in our life, what the promise of salvation holds for us. And so these are things that I think are most important when we think about all the things that we, uh, that we know or maybe even been heard or taught about heaven and hell and our process of getting to either one of those destinations, they are paramount to our lives and how we live our life. And, and I'm going to say a couple of hard things throughout these next few weeks, and, and I'm just going to kind of straight out of the gate hit you with this one right now. It says this, there are people who are sitting in this room today who are not saved and who are going to hell. And the sadder reality is most of us simply don't care. We don't care. We don't care enough to have real conversation. We don't care enough to sacrifice maybe our own social popularity or our own perceived popularity. We don't care enough to actually sit down with people and point them to the thing that matters most. And we live, and we, and we live life, and we assume that somebody else will tell them. We assume that, that maybe if they're looking, they'll ask questions, or we assume that everybody we know are already believers. And we sit around, and we live life with people that are destined for hell, and we don't care enough to do something about it. We ignore scripture like Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. I think it's on the board. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in, prophesy in your name? And do we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? In our context, we'd say, Do we not go to church? Didn't we tithe? Didn't we, didn't we teach Sunday school? Didn't we do all the things that we were supposed to do? And verse 23 says, I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. 
That, that verse should shake us to our core. We should be so messed up by reading that going, there are people that we know that he's going to say, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you've really done. How can we say that we love someone and not make sure of this one most important thing? How can we interact with people on a daily basis and have their eternity in question? We live knowing that heaven is promised, but we don't care enough to make sure that everybody gets to go there with us. We don't, we don't take the time and we don't give the example that Jesus gave. Jesus literally left heaven to come here so that we had an opportunity to go there with him when we die. That's not the example. Jesus left us. Why? Why in the world would we absolutely not care enough just to pause? I, listen, I had some people in my office over the last couple of weeks, and you know, they come and talk, and they want to have some, uh, you know, whatever. I, I listen to folks. I'm not a counselor. I, I have to say that from the beginning, uh, because I'm I'm just not. I'm not licensed. I don't. I, don't, I can give advice, and I can listen. Um, and that, that at the point of every conversation that I have with somebody, no matter what's going on in their world, I look at them and say, "Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. It may seem dumb to you, but I've got to know the answer. Are you saved?" And, and 90% of the people that sit down and talk to me, probably 95% of the people, are all church people. And some of, them, some of them really appreciate me asking that. Others seem almost shocked. Why would you ask me that? Because I've got to know. It's the most important thing. We can't go anywhere else. We can't build any other house on a foundation if we don't have this foundation. Are, are you saved? Do you know that you know that you're saved? That's a question that if many of us out in public were to ask somebody, we would break out in sweat and hives and think that people are thinking, what is wrong with these people? Because right? we get so nervous. Well, how do I direct the conversation? Just ask them. It's not hard. Because when we think about the realities of people who die and how fast life goes by, we've got to settle on the most important thing. And that's when it hit me. We don't understand the realities of heaven and hell because we understand here and now, right? We understand uh, what we can touch and feel and smell and experience in our presence. And we can't adequately wrap our minds around eternity because we live so much right here in this moment right now. We try in this world to manufacture heaven. Right, we know kind of out of Revelation chapter 21, it says that there'll be no more pain and no more death and no more tears, right? No more mourning in heaven. We understand that. Scripture tells us that. So what we do in our world is we try to manufacture that here. We, we buy bigger and better toys. We, we consume life. Right? We try to escape pain by overindulging in either alcohol or prescription medication or whatever your drug of choice is. We, we maintain shallow relationships because you can't be hurt deeply if you don't have deep relationships. And we, we, we try to fill all these empty spaces in our hearts with something that we think will make us feel whole, whether that's relationships or our kids or vacations or our busy schedules by working ourselves to death or by busying ourselves or by buying things or keeping appearances that we have it all together, like we're keeping up with the Joneses, right? We try to, we try to put on the face and make ourselves happy. Somebody else in Scripture did this. 
Y'all remember Solomon? Wisest guy that ever lived, the richest guy who ever lived. He, he accumulated wealth, he accumulated power and influence, he accumulated women and pleasure and parties, and he tried to live this lifestyle, all trying to fill that emptiness. And he summarized it all so beautifully in Ecclesiastes. It says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Your, your version may say vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. Now that stuff matters. Now that stuff is going to fill this longing that we have because I believe every one of us have a longing for eternity. We have a desire inside of us that knows that there's got to be something more than just this. Right? Because if this is it, Paul says, then we should be pitied among all men. If this is all there is to it, The Bible promises us, Jesus promises us that there is this life everlasting. There's this life after us. And when we recognize the magnitude that the decisions that we make in this short breath impact our destination in eternity, then this really is the most important thing. So maybe today, you don't really know how to think or what to think about heaven and hell. Maybe you've been taught that heaven's a place that only really good people go, right? You've got to be really, really good to get into heaven. Or maybe you've been taught that everybody goes to heaven. Right? That was a, there was a mega church pastor who turned, uh, I don't know how to say that, culturally cool, I guess. I'm not, I'm not culturally cool. Uh, he turned, he wanted to be Oprah's best friend. That was his goal in life. And he got on the show and now he's, he, he wrote a book that says, love wins. Everybody, everybody gets to go to heaven. When you die, it doesn't matter whether you've accepted Jesus or not. You still get to go to heaven because love, God loves us and love wins. That's not what the Bible says. Like at all. When he came out with that, his church said, sorry, dude, you're no longer our pastor. Maybe, maybe you think that hell is you know, really for the only bad people, like the really, really bad. Or maybe you've you kind of bought into that Dante's levels of hell, and maybe if you go there, you won't go to the really, really, really bad parts. You'll just kind of go to the uncomfortable parts. This morning, what I want to talk about is this reality, what Scripture says, and hopefully begin to draw some conclusions from this. And let me just say from the beginning that there are hundreds of different Bible verses talking about heaven and hell, and, and multiple different interpretations about those Bible verses, and I am by no means trying to give you an exhaustive scope of that. This morning, I've, I've, I've given us one Sunday to talk about this. And so we're going we're gonna to hit some things that I think are important. We're not going to try to get, look at every, uh, every piece of Scripture. But what we are going to look at is a, is, a, is a passage of Scripture Jesus is talking. And he's given a parable, which is, a, which is like a, a teachable story about some realities in heaven and hell. And, and, and really, I think, it has some really great insights and really incredible things in it. But before we start, we have to agree on these two things, okay? Number one, we have to agree that the Bible is the authority on all subjects. That what the Bible says is the authority on all subjects. Number two, what we have to agree is that all Scripture is divinely inspired by God. Although written by human authors, the Holy Spirit inspired those authors of what to write. Okay? And so when we think about these two things, they are paramount to our understanding of what Scripture says. Because if it is the authority, then what it says is what it says. And if it was divinely inspired, then that means God said that. Okay? And so we have to agree on those two things. So if we all just 
kind of blanket agree to that. Maybe you say, I don't know, I'm going to hold out some reservation. That's okay. But this is the approach that I'm coming at it to, okay? And so we have those two things because if we have those, then we can't get lost in the opinions of other people, right? Because opinions whether they're uh, pastors or politicians or social media influencers, which just make me want to poke my eyeballs out, uh, whether they're uh, celebrities or there is such a thing called a celebrity pastor. Isn't that sad? Uh, whether it's that or, I don't care, authors or your great-grandma, I, their opinions really don't matter. It's what Scripture says that matters. Right? So we go back, Scripture's the authority, not these, these people that we maybe listen to. So what Scripture calls truth is truth. What Scripture calls sin is sin. What Scripture says about heaven and hell is all we have to go on when it comes to the topic of heaven and hell. Because after all, if God is the author of Scripture and God created the heavens and the earth, don't you think we should take his word for what he says about what they are? See how logical that makes sense? It takes away all these extras. I say all that to say because what culture tells us about heaven and about hell are not at all what Scripture tells us about. An exaggerated form of, of, of cultural view of heaven is that we're all sitting around on clouds playing the harps dressed in the diapers, right? That's what we think of when we think about heaven. And that's not at all what the Scripture says heaven is like. An exaggerated form of hell and culture is that it's ruled by some scaled, pitchfork-wielding red man or... If you listen to country music, it's a place where it's just a big party all the time. You can drink beer with your buddies all day long. If we're going to hell, there's a song on the radio right now, Give, give Heaven Some Hell. Are you serious? Some of you are like, oh, it's my favorite song. Pick a new song. We can't go off of what culture says. We have to go back to what Scripture says. So, if you've got your Bible, go to Luke chapter 16. We have this extended teaching recorded uh, by, by Luke of Jesus. And if you go all the way back, I think, to Luke chapter 10 and start looking from Luke 10 all the way through, really, Luke 17, there's a lot more red words on the page than there are black words on the page. If, you're, if you have a red-lettered Bible, that's sort of the things that Jesus are saying. And so uh, if you look from even chapter 10 all the way through, there's a bunch more red words than there are black words on the page. Luke gives us context to what he's saying. He says things like, and then he told his disciples... Or the next day, the Pharisees came to him and he said. He, he's given us a little bit of context, but to Luke, what's most important is what Jesus said. Uh, not necessarily the setting or how it was, it, was, it was kind of given out to it. So he's not worried about setting the scene as much as he is about recording what Jesus said. So we finally get to Luke chapter 16, and Jesus is teaching and talking to some Pharisees. And he tells them this story. And I believe this story contains a lot of truth about the realities of heaven and hell. So let's read it together. Verse 19, Luke 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. We have this scene that he's setting up, right? Jesus is kind of setting the, the scene here for one person had it all, one person had nothing. One person had accumulated wealth and power and influence, and one was a beggar and a social outcast and a social nobody. Remember how we talked about trying to manufacture heaven earlier? Verse 22. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father, Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Let me stop here and explain a few things because what Jesus is doing, we go, that's kind of weird, okay? Number one, Jesus is using some common symbolism in this parable. Remember, this is a teachable story. He's speaking to a group of people whose understanding of God is literally narrowed down to either their ability to keep the law or their family tree that goes all the way back to Abraham and the covenant that God made with his people. Okay? And so he's, he's kind of drawing them into things that they are very familiar with. He's not obviously using terms like heaven, and he uses the word hell here, but he doesn't, he doesn't call them that often. But culturally, the people he's talking to know exactly what he's talking about. And then the second thing I want you to understand is that the Jewish understanding of the afterlife in Jesus' time is a little different than what we understand it as now. From, from all the way to the Old Testament, all the way through, uh, the Jewish those who believed in an afterlife, Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife, but the Pharisees did. What they understood of that is, uh, think of a, of a big, like, think of a big circle. I should have probably drawn this out on the screen. The afterlife in Jewish culture is called Sheol. You've probably read that in scripture a couple of different places. Sheol is a place that everybody goes. It's all one big holding place until the Messiah comes to redeem Israel and sets everybody free. In Sheol, the very bottom part of that is considered Hades. That's where all the evil and the ones who did not keep the law, those who, uh, those who were opposed to the Mosaic law, they all went to Sheol, or yeah, to, to Hades in Sheol. Down at the bottom is a place of torment, it's a place of punishment. Those who did keep the law, those who were righteous, went to what they called Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. Okay, it's kind of a weird word. Uh, what, this all kind of dates back to the, na- the ancient Near Eastern custom of when they would go and have dinner at somebody's house. Dinner in, in a Jewish culture is a very intimate affair. You'd sit on the floor around a, a, a semi-elevated table. And if you read in Scripture, you talk about there's parts where Jesus is reclining at the table. Because that's what they did. They just kind of leaned back. Think about their legs underneath the table and they kind of lean back on their arms. And what would happen is the person who was the host sat at the head of the table. But their, their honored guest would sit at their right-hand side. We see that symbolism all through Scripture. And as their guests would lean back and recline at the table, most often they would lean back on the person next to them. And so there was this very, we would think of it as really weird. But in their culture, it's very normal for for. Maybe the head of the, the table to be sitting here and somebody leaned back almost all the way onto their chest. And they'd kind of look back at them and they'd have a conversation and they'd continue on with everybody else. Everybody's leaned back on everybody. And so when we see this, this picture that Jesus is painting is that Lazarus, this beggar, this poor man, this guy who's covered in sores, is leaning back onto Abraham. Father Abraham. The, the kind of the patriarch of, 
of all the Pharisees' faith and everything that they, God calls and ties back to in Old Testament, how could this beggar be drawn to Abraham's side? And this rich man is in torment. This little passage that we've read also tells us a harsh understanding of hell. And it's all contained in, in one word at the very end in verse 24. Agony. It says, I am in agony in this fire. The Greek word here means to cause intense pain, to torment, or self-distress. Every time scripture mentions hell, it speaks of it in similar terms. Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 is internal fire. Matthew 8, 12, thrown outside into darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 46, eternal punishment. Revelation 14 says the word torment. Revelation 9, the abyss. Romans chapter 2, the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 21, the second death. And 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, exclusion from the face of the Lord. All those terms... I think agony probably sums it up the best. It's just agony. Because hell is the opposite of heaven. We love to talk about heaven, right? First and foremost, heaven is heaven is the dwelling place of God the Father. Over and over in Scripture, uh, it tells us, Jesus even teaches us to pray. You guys know this verse, Our Father who is in heaven hallowed be thy name, right? Everything that you read, even just in the book of Matthew alone, I've got, I don't, I've got reference after reference here. Jesus continues to say, your father in heaven, your father in heaven. Matthew 6, uh, 5, 16, the same way that your light shine before men so that they see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. Matthew 5, 44, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Matthew 6, 1, be careful not to do your righteous acts before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Matthew 7, 11, Matthew 18, 14, he continues to use that same, and then he changes it. Sometimes he uses, my Father who's in heaven. Matthew 7, 21, we read this earlier. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 and 33, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Matthew 12, 50, 16, 17, 18, 10, 18, 19, you see the theme here. He's in heaven. That is the dwelling place of God the Father. When John had his vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 4, he said he saw a man, he said he saw the heavens and there was a throne and there was someone sitting on it. So God the Father is very much in heaven. It makes sense. When we read the descriptions of heaven, when we see the glory of God, where God himself will be the light, there will be no more pain or suffering or tears or death. Obviously, that's a place where God is because those are things that only God can do. So we go, okay, heaven is the dwelling place of God, but it's also where Jesus came from, where he currently is and where he's coming back from. Scripture tells us this over and over again. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Which means he was there in heaven in the beginning. You skip down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. If he came from the Father, the Father is in heaven. Jesus was in heaven. And we don't have time to read all the scripture references about how Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. I gave you those just a couple of weeks ago in our Easter series. Over and over again, it talks about how Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. When he ascended, that's where he is. And then incredibly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 says, this is where he's coming from. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead, and Christ will rise first. This is where he's coming from. So heaven is a place that God lives, that Jesus came from, is, and is coming back from. Over and over again, Scripture tells us this incredible thing. And what Jesus is establishing in Luke chapter 16 is heaven is where God is. Hell is where God is not. Heaven is the actualization of God's presence, his provision, and his grace. And hell is the absence of God's presence, provision, and grace. The rich man was experiencing agony, not just from the fire, but from the absence of the presence, provision, and grace of the Father. There's separation. For the first time, listen, we all live in what I've called general grace. Whether you are a believer or not, the worst of the worst individuals in, uh, on our planet live in what I call provisional grace. God gives us the ability to have sight and breath and a heartbeat he gives us the ability to, to maintain relationships and feel and experience love on some level. That's provisional grace of God. When you are in hell, you are away from the provisional grace of God. People ask me, what is hell going to be like? I said, I don't know. But I never want to experience it. Because it's away from the Father and all that he gives us, even at our worst. So let's go back to Jesus' words. Luke chapter 16, verse 25. Abraham replied, son, remember that in this lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. It's a couple of interesting phrases in these two verses I want to draw our attention to. The first one says, in your lifetime, you received your good things. While we're at Lazarus, received bad things. The presence of that pronoun in this sentence and the absence of it in the second sentence is on purpose. Your good things implies that this is all that the rich man cared about. He went after those things. Those were his things. They were most important in his life. Those are the things he worked for and longed for and made a priority. Lazarus had bad things. They weren't his bad things. They were just bad things, things that just happened. This is a statement of priority, not of possessions. And that's very important. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. There's nothing wrong, if you're a rich man, there's nothing wrong with being a rich man. There's nothing wrong with having vacations and driving nice cars and participating in external things. There's nothing wrong with that. It's simply wrong when it's most important. 
when it supersedes everything else in your life and your desire for God and what he has for you, that's when it becomes wrong. It's a, it's a statement of priority, not about possession. He said, you've received your good things. The second thing that he says that I think is so great is the chasm that has been fixed. It's a great chasm. That word fixed means firmly placed. There's no moving it. There's no going back. There's no changing your mind. There's no doing it differently. Once we die, once we are confronted with the realities of God and the reality of heaven and hell and the reality of the decisions that we've made, we cannot change our destination. It is fixed. Now, Catholics want to tell you that they can pray you out of purgatory. If you're familiar with Catholic uh, um, theology, they believe that uh, souls who are not the best of the best go to a place called purgatory. All the way, this dates all the way back to Martin Luther in 1517. That was the whole reason why he posted the 99 Theses on the wall of the uh, church in Wittenberg, Germany, because he said what we're doing right now is wrong because we're charging people to pray dead people out of purgatory, and we really don't know that we can do that. There is no scripture in the entire Bible that supports any kind of theology that says you can move from one place to the other. Once you die, your decision has been made. You cannot go from here to there. You cannot go from there to here. And can I just say this in love? No decision is a decision against God. No decision is a decision against God. So we have this fixed chasm. We have this priority mindset of what's most important. And most of you would say, Matt, I get it. I get it. Heaven and hell, comfort and agony, fixed position. But I got time. I've got, I got all the time in the world. I'm a young man. I remember seniors, since it's a senior Sunday. I was having a conversation with a guy this week. We were talking about our dads. His dad is 70. My dad is turning 70 this year. He was 44. I'm turning 44 this year. And I remember, I remember moving from our little town of Missouri to Arkansas. And I remember my mom turning 40. And how old she was. I'm just thought, oh my gosh, my mom is 40. My dad put a big uh, 10 by 20 sign in our yard up on uh, posts. Lordy, lordy, my wife is 40. And I thought, he's going to be a dead man. But I just remember her being, oh, that's so old. She's 40. And now here I am, 44, going, I don't feel like I'm 44. I feel like I'm still 24 till I try to do anything remotely athletic. Then I recognize how, how old I really am, right? It just goes by so fast. You think, I got time. I got all the time in the world. Jesus has an answer for that argument, too. Keep reading. Verse 27. This is the rich man speaking. He said, he answered, I beg you then, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let him listen to them. 
No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Did you catch the rich man's urgency? I got brothers. They need to know about this. They need to know, right, send somebody right now to my brother's house. I don't want them to, I don't want to end up like this. I wrote in my notes, every dead person believes in heaven and hell. Every dead person believes in the existence of God and every dead person understands the urgency of time. We are not promised tomorrow. James says that our life is like a, a mist or a vapor. It appears for only a little while and then vanishes. This is a decision that you have to make now. Why, why in the world would you chance waiting? And then it hit me. We chance waiting because we're not focused on what's most important, right? We're, we chance waiting because we see this life surrendered to God and it equates this life of not participating in activities that we know are kind of against what he has for us. And we're essentially saying that God is more important. He's just not most important. <coughs> we understand God is more important than these activities, but he's not most, not yet, He's not yet. Heaven's what I want eventually. I just want this more. I want this now. I want this in the meantime. Whether that's popularity. I want power. I want influence. I want material things. I want sexual things. I want pleasure things. I want social things. I want worldly things. I want this now. I guess my question this morning is, is your this really more important than eternity? Lastly, those of you who are saved, who have surrendered to what God has for you, who are secure in your position of eternity, guess who you are in this parable? You're not Abraham. Everybody wants to be Abraham. You're not Abraham. You're Moses and the prophets. You're the ones who should be telling the story of who God is. Let them listen to them, is what Abraham said. The problem is we don't think that we're Moses. Right? We've never had a burning bush moment. We've never had a Red Sea part in front of us. We, we've never spoke face to face with God as one friend speaks to another. Like We've never had those kind of experiences. But yes, you have. Can I just say it? Yes, you have. If you've surrendered your heart and life to God, then the Holy Spirit is burning within you. you should be, he should be leading you. He should be driving your decisions. He should be driving everything that happens in your life. He's parting the seas to make the gospel the most important thing to you. You want a burning bush? Look how God's provided for you. Just think back over your life and go, man, that's God. You want a Red Sea part? Look at the grace that you've been given, even when you didn't deserve it. That's grace. You want, you want a face-to-face -face encounter with God? Read your Bible. Read your Bible and have a face-to-face -face encounter with God. Stop making excuses of why you can't point people to Jesus and start living in the power that he's already given you. He's already given you everything you need to point someone to Jesus. 
Jesus the Lord says, your example, your story, your testimony is enough to point generations to him. He's got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. But too many of us are making excuses instead of making disciples. And we're living in fear while heaven and hell are in the balance. While eternity is in the balance. While a fixed destination for people that you love is in the balance. We've got to start talking about what's most important. What's incredible is that's the end of the story. There's no resolve. There's no pretty bow. Jesus doesn't come back and go, but it's okay. It's, he doesn't say that. He says there's a fixed position. One is there. One is in agony. And they've got people to listen to if they want to know the truth. So church, do you live with urgency when it comes to eternity? Do you live with the, the knowledge of reality of heaven and hell, but without the care to ensure other people go? Jesus literally says it's our responsibility to make sure other people know. It's our responsibility to go to that guy's five brothers and tell them. It's our responsibility to go to our family and our friends, the people that we interact with on a normal basis, the coworkers, people who maybe work for us or we work for, and say, listen, there's something that's more important than anything else. And I know this is weird and it's going to take a couple minutes of your time, but I've got to ask you a question. Because heaven and hell are in the balance. I'm going to ask if you would just stand. TJ's going to come and we're going to have a moment of invitation. And maybe today, maybe for the first time, some realities of these places hit you and you don't know. If, if you're honest, you go, man, I don't, I don't know if I'm saved. If you would ask me point blank, I'd say, I hope. Or I assume, maybe, or some of us are maybe even honest enough to say, no, I'm not. Well, if you hear nothing this morning here, this is the opportunity of a lifetime to hold on to the thing that matters most. And let me just say this, a fear of, of going to hell is not what will save you. Nobody wants to go there. But there was a man who loved you enough who left heaven and came to earth and lived a life of sacrifice for you. He paid the penalty, the, the penalty that we own for our sin. And he nailed it to a cross and he died. Satisfying this eternal debt that we owed that we could never pay back. And the Bible says if we put our hope and our faith and our trust in Him, then He is the one that saves us. The Bible says we are sealed in Him. That act of surrender is the easiest thing in the world to do. It's the hardest thing in the world to get yourself to do. Broken people surrender pretty easily. People who are living life just normal surrender a little harder. This is your opportunity to say, God, I, I don't have all the answers, but I know I need you. I need saving because heaven is in the balance. I'd love to walk you through that. Somebody who you're sitting next to would love to walk you through that. 
Don't leave this morning without the urgency of that decision being made in your heart. Some of you may say, listen, I'm, I'm saved. I know it. I haven't been living it, but man, I just need somebody to pray for me and pray with me. I'd love to do that. Maybe I've been saved, but I've never been baptized. Man, I, I just need to be baptized. I need to follow what Jesus told me to do next. Maybe I just need to join the church. Whatever it is, this is your opportunity. I'll be here. You're welcome to come and just pray or pray with me. If you have questions, I'd love to answer them. Don't miss this opportunity to settle what matters most. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for today, and we thank you for the realities that Scripture lays out for us. Now, beautifully, Jesus paints a picture through this little simple parable in Luke chapter 16. Father, if there's somebody here this morning that says, I'm not saved and I need to get that way. God, I pray that they would do it this morning. They wouldn't miss an opportunity that today would be the day that they gave their heart and life and secured their eternal destination in heaven. God, if somebody just has questions and would love to sit down and talk, God, I'm, I'm always open for that. Father, for a lot of us, I think maybe it's just a wake-up call that we've got a job to do. That we've got to stop making excuses and start making disciples and we've got to start pointing people to who you are. And whether somebody else who is indecisive is living with urgency, Father, let us live with urgency to tell. Let it be the story on our lips, the drive in our heart. And even though we are not perfect people, we can point people to a perfect God. God, this morning we have an opportunity to make a decision. If there's somebody that needs to come and pray, God, I pray that they would do that. If they need to come talk to me, I pray that they would do that. A better day than today. God, help us as we make these decisions in the next few moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. I ask you to keep your head down and your eyes closed. TJ's going to sing over us. You guys come as you need. This is your opportunity to do business with God. Don't pass this up as TJ sings.